Well, I want to ask you to do something today that you don't hear a preacher say very often. I want to ask you to open your Bible to the very last chapter of the very last book. Revelation chapter number 22. And while you're finding that, I want to ask you a question that is, is a very interesting question. And I think as you process this question, it will help you to know how you're doing spiritually and kind of where you are in your relationship with God. Here's the question. If Jesus Christ returned today at 5 o'clock this afternoon, if somehow God sent an angel down and said, today at 5 o'clock, Jesus is coming back, and you will be immediately in heaven, how would that make you feel? So I want to give you an old-fashioned, multiple-choice way of answering that question. First of all, some here today would say, man, if I knew Jesus were coming back today at five o'clock, I would be excited because that would mean I would get a new body. I would be in heaven. I would be with God. All my problems would be solved. Man, that would be the most exciting thing in the world. And I imagine a lot here today would say, put me in that category. There's some though, I fear, who would say, if I knew that Jesus were coming today at five o'clock, now you wouldn't say this. Nobody would say this. But I'll guarantee you there's some Christians, their word would be disappointed. And the reason they would be disappointed is they have goals and dreams, things they want to accomplish in life, things they want to see happen, places they want to go, experiences they want to have, and they wouldn't say it because nobody would say it. But they would think to themselves, you know what, if Jesus were coming today at 5, that means I can't do all these things that I want to do. And so actually it would kind of make me disappointed. Others would say, man, if I knew that Jesus were coming back today at 5 o'clock this evening, I would be scared to death. I would be afraid because I'm not sure what would happen to me. And I would think even in this service today and for those listening at home, there would be some who would say, I'm just not quite ready for that to happen. In the first service, when we gave the time at the end for people to be saved, there were four people in this room who stood up and received Jesus Christ as their Savior. So before they did that, I think they would have been in this category where they say, you know what? I'm afraid because I don't know God personally. I don't know what would happen to me. But then there are others who would say, you know what? I think the word that would best describe how I would feel if I knew that Jesus Christ were returning today at five o'clock would be the word ashamed. Ashamed. It's not that I'm afraid to meet God. I know I'm saved, but I'm ashamed because I'm not doing what God wants me to do with my life. My life is, I've become selfish. I've become too focused on my own dreams and desires. I'm not serving God. I'm not doing what I ought to do. I'm not afraid to meet God. I'm not afraid to see him but I'm ashamed. Now, I want us to look at a verse. Before we get into the Revelation passage, this is going to be on the, on the screen, but you may want to just jot this verse down. It's one of my favorite verses in all the New Testament. 1 John chapter 2 and verse number 28, notice what it says, and now little children abide in him, that is abide in Jesus, that when he appears, we may have confidence and, read the next three words out loud. What does it say? Say it a little bit loud. Say it like Lucas would say it. A little more energy. Say it. Not be ashamed at his coming. And so John is saying, when Jesus comes back, whether it's today at five, tomorrow at five, or 10 years from now, we don't know when it will happen, but we don't want to be ashamed. And the way not to be ashamed is to abide in him. That's just a Bible way of saying, be close to God. Be 
walking in step with Jesus. Be trying to please God with all your heart, because if you are, you won't be ashamed. You'll have confidence. You'll say, yes, Jesus is coming day at 5 o'clock, and I'm ready to meet Him, and I'm not ashamed. But if you're not abiding in Him, something's in your life that shouldn't be there, you would be ashamed to have to look Jesus Christ face to face today at 5 p.m. Now, Revelation chapter 22, we're going to pick up in verse number 6 in just a moment. But it's interesting to me, Revelation, the last two chapters, 21 and 22, are about heaven. The classic verse chapters in the Bible about heaven. The first five verses of Revelation 22 tell us some things about heaven. We've spent several weeks on those verses, how when we get to heaven, we're going to serve God. We're going to see Jesus face to face. His name will be written across our forehead. We're going to see the throne of God. God today, the Father, is seated on a throne. And from underneath that throne comes a river, a pure river of water of life. We've studied that. That's what it talks about. There are trees in heaven, fruit trees in heaven. And every month, these trees produce different types of fruit. You could make an argument that the book of Revelation could have ended after verse number 5, because at that point, we don't really get any new information about heaven. And yet, it doesn't end after verse 5. Verses 6 through 21 are kind of an an addendum. It's some extra material. And these verses are included for two reasons. Number one, to emphasize to us that Jesus is coming quickly. It could happen at any moment. Now look, for example, in verse number 7, just so you'll see these verses. Verse 7, Jesus said, Behold, I am coming quickly. Verse 12, Behold, I am coming quickly. Again in verse 20, Surely I am coming quickly. As I said last time, some of your translations use the word soon there, and that's a fine translation. The Greek word can be translated soon or quickly, but I think we would all agree that if you're going to use the word soon there, we're talking about from God's perspective. Because it's been 2,000 years since Jesus spoke those words. So from our perspective, that's not soon. From God's perspective, a 1,000 years is like a day. So it's still a good translation. But the word quickly, I think, captures what Jesus is saying. Because everything about the second coming of Jesus Christ in the New Testament, it's quick. It's a thief in the night. It's the twinkling of an eye. And so when Jesus says, I'm coming quickly from our perspective, doesn't necessarily mean soon. In fact, it doesn't mean soon at all, but it means it's going to happen just like that. In the twinkling of an eye, it will all be over and we will be in heaven. And so these verses are included to stress that, but they're also included to say to us, since you don't know when Jesus is coming, since you don't know how you will see him at the moment of your death or at the rapture of the church, You would be wise, I would be wise, we would all be wise to live our lives in such a way so that when He does come quickly, the snap of the finger, the blink of the eye, that we could see Him face to face and not be ashamed. And so here's the big question that I want us to think about today. When Jesus comes for us, again, either at the moment of our death or at the rapture of the church, what will He find us doing? That's the question. What will we be doing when Jesus comes back? Well, I don't know the answer to that, neither do you. But I'm going to give you some things today that I hope he finds us doing. I hope he finds me doing these things, and I know you feel the same way. First of all, I would say this. When Jesus comes for us, I hope he finds us worshiping him. I hope that's what we're doing, that we're worshiping him. Now, in chapter number 22, look in verse number 8. Now, remember, 
the Apostle John is having or has had a guided tour of heaven by an angel. And in verse 8, he says, Now I, John, saw and heard these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Then he said to me, See that you do not do that. For I am your fellow servant and of your brethren the prophets and of those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. So John was so overwhelmed by this experience. Can you imagine if you had an angel guiding you through heaven? Well, when the tour got over, you'd do the same thing John did. You would fall down to worship that angel. But the angel said, wait a second, John, don't do that. You're going to get us both in trouble. You're going to get in trouble for worshiping me instead of God, and I'm going to get in trouble for letting you worship me. So get up. Worship God. Now, that word worship is an interesting word. Our English word worthy is kind of the root of that word worship. In other words, When we worship God, what we're doing is we are ascribing worth to God. And we're saying to God, you are worthy of my best. You're my Savior, my healer, my friend, my deliverer, my protection, my provider, my peace, my comforter. And so, God, I'm just ascribing worth to you. Now, when we think of worship, we rightly think, of singing songs of worship to God. We just spent the first 30 minutes of this service doing that, and it was wonderful. And it's probably my favorite part of the service, even though I do the back end of it on the, I mean, I like them both, but there's something about that worship that is, that is very, it's, it's uplifting, it's edifying. Of course, studying the Bible is the same way. You can't have one without the other. But I just enjoy just the, the, the worship of God. What are we doing? We're just giving God uh, the worth that he has deserved. But worship is more than just the first 30 minutes of the service. Even though we're not standing and singing, the band has, they've all been seated, so that part's over, but we're still worshiping God right now. <laughs> I'm standing here with an open Bible, and you're sitting there following along, and we're worshiping God. And so worship is not just something we do when we sing. Worship should be, for all of us, a way of life, that our lives should be an expression of worship. Whether we're in church or at home or at the grocery store or at school or at work or driving down the road in our car, our lives should be worship. Let me give you a verse to write down. Psalm 29 and in verse number 2, the Bible says, Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Did you know that every time you're tempted to sin and you resist that temptation, and you don't give into it, that is an expression of worship. See, we think of worship, we coming down here at the church, and we're lifting our hands, and we're worshiping God in song. Well, that is worship, but there's more to worship than that. And so every time we resist resist temptation, that is worship. Did you know every time you open your Bible at home and have your quiet time and read the verses or the chapter that you're going to read for that day, that's worship? Every time you pray, that's worship. Every time you're kind to somebody, that's an expression of worship. Every time somebody is rude to you or hurtful to you, you respond with love and forgiveness to them, that is worship. Everything is worship. And yet I think really, and most of us, if you want to know what I really think, I think most of us view worship as something we ought to do. I think, in other words, most of us, when we wake up in the morning, we say, I ought 
to read my Bible today, and I ought to pray, and on Sunday I ought to go to church, and we should do that. And it is, there's a sense in which that's true. But worship should not just be a duty that we do because we have to do it. Worship should be an overflow of coming out of a grateful heart to God for all He has done to us. Think about this, friend. If you are saved, that means God has forgiven all your sins. That means when you die, you don't have to go to hell forever. Instead, you get to go to heaven. Now, I don't know about you, but that fills my heart with gratitude. I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven, and I'm going to go to heaven because of Jesus. But I'm saying that should just fill our hearts with gratitude. So worship shouldn't be a duty. And, if it, and sometimes in my life it feels that way. I'm like, okay, I've got to read my Bible today. I've got to pray today. Or even sometimes you just you wake up, maybe you don't feel good, maybe you didn't sleep well last night, and you think, I've got to go to church today. Well, some, that's just the, we don't always feel our best. But I'm saying, as a general rule, our lives with God shouldn't be, I have to, I ought to, I'm, I must, I'm going to make myself do it. It should be, I love God and I want to. Now, you could have said amen, right? It would have been a great place to say amen right there. I mean, it was really good what I said. I was reading in my devotion yesterday uh, by Oswald Chambers, and I'm on and off again with this. I've read him for years and years, so I've read it so many times. I don't always read this, but I read it yesterday. And he was, before I get into this, he was telling a story or he's quoting a scripture from John chapter 4. If you remember when Jesus was going through Samaria and there was a lady there who needed to be saved. She had lived a kind of a rough life and yet Jesus loved her and he wanted to forgive her and save her. And so he got to a particular well at noon and it was hot and it was dry and he was thirsty. And so this woman came to the well to get water to take back to the village. And when she got to the well, Jesus said to her, give me something to drink. And she said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, are speaking to me, a Samaritan woman? Jews and Samaritans didn't speak to each other. And the Samaritan lady knew that the Jewish religious leaders were so legalistic these Pharisees, that they had made a law. You know, the Bible says, thou shalt not commit adultery. Now, we're all in favor of that law, right? That's a good, that's one of the Ten Commandments. That's a great rule. We shouldn't commit adultery. But the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the Jews had come along and said, okay, if it's wrong to commit adultery, what we want to do is we want to make up a law that would make it impossible to commit adultery. We want to make a law that says, if a man is walking down a street and a lady's walking in his direction on the same side of the street, that man has to cross over to the other side of the street because it wouldn't be right for a man and a woman to pass each other on the same side of the street because they might talk to each other. And if they start talking to each other, a spark might be lit and then they might have an affair and commit adultery. So let's just make it where they can't even speak. Well, now we all need to have some boundaries and safeguards in our lives. But the problem was the Pharisees had put the same credence to their little man-made laws than what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say that a man and a woman can't cross each other on the same side of the street. It doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't say that a man and a woman can't meet at a well and have a conversation and, and give each other water. It doesn't say that. But the Pharisees had made these laws. See, that was, that's the heart of Phariseeism, that we're making these laws and our laws are the Word of God. Well, their laws weren't the Word of God. They, were, they made them up. Well, so here's Jesus by himself at a well with a lady, and he starts talking to her. 
And she's saying, how is it that you're talking to me? You're not supposed to be talking to me. I'm a Samaritan, and I am a woman. Well, Jesus said to her, basically, if you knew who I was, you would have asked me, and I would have given you living water. Jesus says this to her, and the lady's looking at Jesus. He not- she notices he doesn't have anything to draw water up out of that well. And so she says to him, sir, you have nothing with which to draw water out of that well, and the well is deep. Now, before I read this devotional that I'm about to read, those four words, the well is deep, is what Oswald Chambers uses as a springboard for this devotional. In fact, those are the first four words of this particular reading. He said, the well is deep, and even a great deal deeper than the Samaritan woman knew. Think of the depths of human nature and human life. Think of the depths of the wells in you. Have you been limiting or impoverishing the ministry of Jesus to the point that he is unable to work in your life? Suppose that you have a deep well of hurt and trouble inside your heart. And Jesus comes to you and says to you, let not your heart be troubled. Would your response be to shrug your shoulders and say, but Lord, the well is too deep. And even you can't draw up quietness and comfort out of it. Actually, Oswald Chambers said, that is correct. And here was a sentence that just gripped me yesterday. Jesus doesn't bring anything up from the wells of human nature. He brings them down from above. Now, I read that yesterday. And then I was coming, getting ready to come to church to speak at a funeral. But before I did that, I read the devotional. I jumped up on my treadmill. I said, I want to have 30 minutes on the treadmill. And while I was doing my exercising, I was thinking about that. And I was thinking about this sermon today. And I was thinking about worship and how for many of us, worship can become a duty and drudgery and something we ought to do, but we don't really want to do. But really, it should be something we do want to do because our heart is overflowing with gratitude. Do you know one of the reasons that for a lot of Christians... Worship is a duty. I'll tell you why. It's because they haven't unloaded to God all the hurt, all the trouble, all the anxiety, all the fear, all the bitterness, all the frustration, all the confusion. And even yesterday on the treadmill, I was thinking about things in my own life that sometimes, you know, here we are during this pandemic and it's just been tough. And there's been parts of it that have been frustrating to all of us. And, and I've, you know, sometimes we can internalize that and it just stresses us out. And so yesterday I said, you know, God, normally when I'm on my treadmill, I have a certain thing people that I pray for, a mental list of people I pray for. But today, what I want to do today, God, I want to just unload onto you everything in me that is troubling, that is upsetting, that is frustrating. I want to just get all of this out to you. And I just did that for my walk on the treadmill. And when I gave God all of that, I said, God, I've given you all those cares, all of those concerns, all those situations. And now I trust you to carry those burdens for me. See, notice I gave Jesus, think about this, I gave Jesus what was weighing me down, and he just lifted it off of me. And I can tell you this, all day yesterday from that moment on, today, second service we're in right now, I just feel in my spirit as light as a feather. Many years ago, Max Licato wrote a book called Traveling Light. That's the name of the book. I never read the book because I thought the title was so good that I knew what the book was about, that we're supposed to travel light. So I thought I had to read that. I know what it's about. Let me ask you a question today. If you were to, to describe how your spirit, when I say your spirit, your mind, your emotional condition, would you say right now 
you're heavy, you're weighted down, you're burdened, you're downtrodden, you're overwhelmed, you're frustrated, you're all of that, you're anxious? Or would you say, you know what, John, I've had all those emotions and sometimes we still have all that, but you know what I've learned to do? I have learned to unload all of that onto Jesus so that today as I'm in this church service, today as I'm watching at home, I can say by the grace of God, I am traveling light. There's a lightness in me because God has taken the burden and God has taken the weight off of me. Now what I'm saying is once God takes that burden off of you, Worship is no longer something that you have to, it's not a duty. It's not, it's like, God, I was weighted down. I was overwhelmed. I was burdened. And God, you lifted that off of me. And how could I do anything else? It just say, except say, God, thank you. And I praise you for who you are and for what you've done in my life. And so I'm saying when Jesus comes back, he may not find us in a worship center at a church service like this. He may. But he may find us in our car, may find us at our home, may find us at work, may find us on the ball field. But I hope he finds us with a light spirit worshiping him for what he's done for us. I'll tell you a second thing I hope Jesus finds us doing. Now, we've just come off the first point right there. That was point number one. And I had three, and I'm only going to do two, or we'll be here all day. But I want you to get this second thing. I hope when Jesus comes back that he finds us not only worshiping him, I hope Jesus finds us working for him. That is doing whatever it is that he would have us to do. Look in verse number 10. Now, John and the angel are having this conversation, and the angel said to John, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. And then look in verse 12. And behold, Jesus said, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to to his work, not according to his knowledge, not according to how many verses he's memorized, not according to to how sweet she is, no, according to his work, to what that person has done for me. Now, I think it's interesting in verse number 10, uh, the angel said to John, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. He said, listen, God has given you a vision. And God has shown you some things that are going to happen in the future. The entire end times has been revealed. Don't seal it up. Share it with others. And John shared it. And that's how we are 2,000 years later, later, several continents removed, studying the book of Revelation. Because he shared it with others, he passed it on. And so what I'm saying is when Jesus comes back, yes, I hope he finds us worshiping him. Because we're grateful for what he's done for us. But I also hope he finds us working for him. And I want to just mention two things that I hope. I, can, I say this for me. I hope when Jesus comes back, he finds these two things in my heart. But I also hope he, finds these two thi- hope he finds these two things in your heart. Number one, a passion for the unsaved. I can say it another way. The passion of an evangelist. You know, that word evangelist is a, is a word that means to share the good news. It comes from a Greek word, euangelion. We get our word evangelism from that. Good news. An evangelist is one who shares the good news. And I hope when Jesus comes back, he finds us doing that. Yesterday at this funeral I spoke at, it was one of the saddest and most difficult services I've ever been in. It was for a 23-year-old young man named Brock Sapardo. 23 years old. The picture of health. Good look could have been a model for any agency. A good-looking, strong, an athlete, 
on his own level of being athletic. And a few days ago, he and his girlfriend were walking out of a restaurant, and suddenly, unexpectedly, zero warning, collapses, evidently had a heart attack, died, 23 years old. And so yesterday, we had the service for him right here, less than 24 hours ago. Now, the interesting thing about Brock is that he was friends, and is, he was friends with a, a young man named Thomas Mills. Thomas grew up in our church here, he and his family, longtime members here. And Thomas was a big baseball player when he was going through our First Baptist Christian Academy, our, high, our school here at the church. And, and Thomas and Brock were friends. They had played some of the other baseball leagues together. And so Thomas said, Brock, won't you come to First Baptist, go to school here, play baseball with us? Well, he did. He came here. Played baseball, all-state baseball player, led our school to a state championship. Just a great guy. Well, back in about 2015, Thomas and Nate Sweeney and Brett Houston and some others of, of uh, Brock's friends said, Hey, Brock, I know you're coming to First Baptist Christian Academy, but you don't really come to the church. So we're having a breaking free weekend, which is our discipleship weekend for students. We do it every, every year in January, February. He said, Why don't you come with us to breaking free? Well, he didn't know what it was, but he came. And while he was here, he heard the gospel that Jesus loves us and will forgive us of our sins because he died on the cross to pay for our sins, shed his blood. Well, at that Breaking Free weekend, Brock got saved. About a month later, he got baptized. And he just began to grow in his relationship with God. One of the finest young men you would ever hope to meet, Brock Sapardo. Now, yesterday, I'm standing in the same spot where I'm standing right now. And these friends of, of, of uh, Brock's were giving eulogies and sharing stories and memories. And I'm sitting, I'm sitting back here at the time before I spoke. I'm thinking, if it weren't for these guys inviting Brock to come to church, what would have happened to him when he died last week? Now, I'm not saying he wouldn't have gotten saved another way. Maybe he would have. But I'm saying this. Those guys had the heart of an evangelist. Now, they don't even know what the word evangelist means. I doubt they do. If I ask Thomas or Nace or Brett, hey, what's the word evangelist mean? I think they'd say, well, you know, I don't, I'm not real sure what that means. They may not know what it means, but they were doing what it tells us to do. And you know what? On stuff like that, it's more important to do what God tells us to do than to know what certain words mean. I mean, it's, it's better to be an evangelist than to define the word. And uh, it'd be, you know, if you can just define it, but don't do it. And so what I'm saying is when Jesus comes back, and, and I know we're in a pandemic and this is a tough time, but we need to pray that God would light in our hearts a passion, the passion of an evangelist. And we need to start, and I know we're in the, thing, the pandemic, and a lot of people don't feel comfortable coming to church, but hopefully as weeks go by and months go by and more people get vaccinated and more people feel safe, people, more people will. I mean, we're having about, I don't know, four or 500 come each week to this particular service. Some weeks we've had more than that. But whatever our number is, what I want us to do in our minds is to get a vision of this room packed out with people not only those of us who are saved worshiping God, but people who are not saved in the atmosphere of worship and in the presence of God so that they could get saved. And so when it's time for them to meet the Lord, that they too could be ready. So we need the passion of evangelists. And the second thing we need is we need the compassion of a friend. We need to have compassionate hearts. I want to tell you a story that I'm going to stop this sermon, but this, this, means, this means something to me. You know, I've noticed in my own life 
If I'm abiding in Jesus and walking with him, giving him my burdens and not internalizing and carrying all that stuff with me, and I'm trying to live right, I have noticed, and I know you have too, when God speaks to our spirit, we can, we can hear him. Not audibly, but we can hear him in our heart. I was home on Friday, and I'd finished my Bible reading and praying, and I was getting ready for whatever I was about to do that day. And, and uh, I just had a feeling in my heart to call our bus driver named Boaz. We've taken many trips to Israel through the years. Boaz is Jewish. Boaz is our bus driver. And Boaz has become like part of our family, like a brother to me. He has spoken at our church, stayed in my house multiple times, and just a good. If you knew Boaz, uh, you would say that is a. He's fun. He's intelligent. He's witty. He's athletic. I mean, he's sharp. He he's on the ball. He's just one of the most neat people that I've ever been around in my life. Boaz is is about my age, maybe one or two or three years older than I am. So he's very young. He's very very young, Boaz. But uh, I just had a strong feeling Friday, call Boaz. He lives in Phoenix now. I hadn't talked to him in, in a while. We stay in touch. But I just called. I, I, I said, Boaz, I said, man, I don't know what's going on. I, he's on my mind today. I just called to make sure everything's okay. Here's what he said. He said, I can't believe you called me. He said, this is, a, this is some kind of a connection. I said, what do you mean? He said, you have no idea what I've been through. He said, on December 17th, I flew from Phoenix to Ukraine, and while I was there, I developed COVID-19, and he said it was bad, and he said I had a bad case of it and a hard time breathing, and I ended up in a hospital in Ukraine on, with, receiving oxygen. He said, finally, I got out of the hospital. I stayed in Ukraine long enough to build up my strength so I could fly back to America by myself, which he did. And he said, for the last six weeks or so, I've just been trying to build up my strength and fully get over that. And he said, I have, I'm over it. I'm completely over it. He said, last Sunday, some buddies of mine, we decided to go on a, on a motorcycle ride. And he said, we were out here, in, you know, in, if you, in Arizona, there's there some cliffs and things, and it's just a beautiful country out there. But he said, we were on a particular road that, that has some sharp twists and turns, and he said, you can't see what's around the bend. And he said, I was driving my bike at about 40 miles an hour, and I took a sharp turn. And he said, when I did, there was another bike coming, and we hit each other head on. And he said, when I did, when I did that, it threw me off my bike, and I'm on, the, I'm on the side of the road. And he said, John, I thought I was dying. And he said, here's why I thought I was dying. He said, as I was watching everything happen, Everything was in slow motion. It was just barely moving. And he said, I said to myself, this is it. I'm dying. He said, but amazingly, a few minutes after that, mentally, it kind of came back to normal speed. He said, I broke my collarbone. I've hurt my back. I think he's messed one of his legs up really bad. I mean, he's just in a horrible shape. But, then, but, he, but again, he said, I can't believe you called me today. It's some kind of a connection. And I thought to myself, I thought, you know, I know there have been times in my life when God has spoken to my heart, call this person, text this person, email this person, visit this person, write this person, encourage this person. And I'm, I'm sure there have been many times that I wasn't abiding in Jesus. And I was so busy doing my own thing that he was impressing something on my heart. And I, I failed to hear it and I failed to do it. I just thank God last week I was doing that. And I, I tell that story today to say 
in COVID, there are so many things we can't do right now. And I think that's why we're all a little bit frustrated with this deal. You can't go to a movie. You can't go to a professional sporting event. You, you just can't do a lot of things. Can't go visit Methodist Hospital. Go visit Methodist Hospital this afternoon. Let me know how that works out for you. It ain't going to work out. They don't let you in. But it may be this afternoon that God impresses on your heart. No, that's right. You can't visit your friend in Methodist Hospital. But you can text them. You can call them. You can pray for them. You can encourage them. And I'm just saying this. I think at least on Friday afternoon when Boaz and I were having that conversation, if Jesus would have returned at that moment, I think Jesus would have said, John, at this moment you're doing exactly what I wanted you to do. You're calling a friend because he put that on my heart. Now, other times he could have come back. And again, he would have said, John, you're not doing what I wanted you to do because I wanted you to do this and you missed it because you weren't abiding in me. Now, the question I ask at the very beginning of this sermon is actually a very good question. If Jesus returned today, how would you feel? Excited? Disappointed? Ashamed? Well, hopefully we're not going to be ashamed now because we know what to do, right? To be worshiping him and to be working for him. But I think there are probably some listening to this who would say, John, to be honest with you, that one about being afraid, that's how I would feel because I'm not ready yet to meet Jesus. And I want to just say to you, we're going to have our prayer and then this service is going to wrap up. But if you have never asked Jesus Christ to come into your heart to forgive your sins and make you a Christian, I'm telling you this, he's coming quickly. Either at the moment of your death, Brock was 23 years old, the picture of health, or at the rapture of the church. But he's given us this moment today to make 100% sure that we're ready to meet him.